Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The United States will undergo some major demographic changes over the coming decades. The Census Bureau has reported that beginning in 2030, the population increase from immigration will overtake the natural increase from births and the number of non-Hispanic white Americans will shrink. As a result, the U.S. will become what's being called a majority-minority nation. And majority-minority is the title that Justin Guest, associate professor of policy and government at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government, has given his new book from Oxford University Press, in which he studies immigration and the politics of demographic change. Professor Justin Guest joins us now. Welcome to our show. Is it a certainty that white Americans, or specifically non-Hispanic white Americans, will become a minority in the 2040s? It's a foundational question you ask, and the truth is, it's complicated. So if our current understanding of what it means to be white in the United States, you know, from a Census Bureau perspective, um, non-Hispanic white, as, as people note on their census survey forms, holds true and, and holds consistent, then yes, it basically is a, a, a pretty strong certainty with current immigration trends and fertility trends continuing. And what are the leading drivers behind those demographic changes in this country? Haven't some conservatives like Tucker Carlson and Representative Matt Gates talked about a plot to alter America's racial composition through policies designed to reduce white Americans' political power? Yeah, but that's absolute nonsense. What it is actually behind it are scientifically measurable trends in the amount of babies different people have and the amount of immigrants that we welcome into our countries and, ha- and how long they stay, uh, especially with their relative age group and, and their rep- rep- you know, reflective uh, fertility rates. Um, and so it really is in many ways almost out of the hands of government. Um, Donald Trump tried very hard for the last, you know, for between uh, 2016 and 2020 uh, to alter those demographic trends and effectively, the majority-minority milestone is still, relatively speaking, on pace. But the Census Bureau reports that net migration to the United States dropped from over 1.5 million to less than 600,000 between 2017 and 2019. And the COVID pandemic must have affected migration in the past two years. Uh, you mentioned uh, conservative government policies. Didn't they all have an effect? Yes, but the effect is largely marginal. Um, what's really driving things right now is differences in fertility rates uh, and the difference in, in terms of age distribution in the United States. And then also our immigration has picked back up since the pandemic uh, has at least slowed, uh, uh, at least in the last year, relatively speaking, with the emergence of the vaccinations. So generally speaking, you know, while we don't have you know, a firm understanding of exactly when the majority minority moment will take place, um, we are still heading in that general direction. It has definitely not been reversed. Um, but you know, the more the more primary thing I think to think about here is not necessarily the way that the Census Bureau has us think about uh, what it is to be a white majority in the United States, but rather what it is to be white. You know, full stop. Um, whiteness itself has changed over the course of American history. It's evolved, and it's very possible that it will evolve in the future um, with the changing demographics of the country and the different understandings of what it means to be an American. Well, but uh, I've heard whites are already a minority in some states. What are we talking about if the word white is something that uh, is not very specific? Sure, it's it's a great question. So, you know, through 19th century glasses, if you're looking at today's demographics of the United States, we're actually already a majority minority country because the way that whiteness was initially conceived in American history uh, was a form of Anglo Protestant background, Northern European Protestants. Um, if that was our definition today, we're already a basically a 60 40 majority minority society because that would not include everyone from Slavs to Italians or Irish Catholics or Jews uh, or Greeks. Um, many all of all of whom today consider themselves to be quite uncontrovertibly uh, uncontroversially white. Uh, and so if our understanding of whiteness were to change in the future to include, say, white Hispanics uh, who currently are not considered white by the Census Bureau, that would also alter our, our, our demographics, along with the very growing group of mixed race individuals in the United States, which grew uh, threefold between 2010 and 2020, according to the U.S. Census. Well, I'm, I'm wondering about the recent influx of, of refugees from Afghanistan, 
we're also likely to see a, a lot of people who've escaped from Ukraine. So would the Afghanis be considered white? The Ukrainians obviously would. Right. So this is a question I think uh, that we cannot fully answer because the census actually works off of self-identification. People self-report their race or ethnic group or religion. And so in many ways, it's about it's a dialectic between how people perceive themselves and how they are perceived by others. Um, in many cases, the Latinos in the United States who perceive themselves currently as maybe brown or just Latino in the United States, um, if they were to return to their home countries, they might be actually thought of as white in nature, their phenotypical appearance. And so, you know, it really does depend on a lot of subjectivities. You mentioned what happened in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, where the numbers were far greater, weren't they, during uh, the waves of immigration, but uh, which led to a backlash and restrictive immigration laws? Absolutely. The United States has been here before. And in many ways, you might think that would be an enormous strength, right? We can say, look, we've been through this. We've been through enormous demographic change historically, um, and you know we know how to get through it. But, but, but unfortunately, wait, wait, but, but the, the early, but the that earlier immigration was largely uh, Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, uh, the uh, Slavic peoples and and people from Italy. Right, right, but they were and, not. And they weren't know, considered white. They weren't welcomed. They weren't welcomed as uh, many of them suffered enormous amounts of uh, social and, and political exclusion. Uh, many of them formed their own uh, 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 economic and social institutions because they weren't welcomed in mainstream American institutions. Um, you know, they are what were called white ethnic groups. Um, and so, you know, one would think that we could learn from the, those earlier experiences. Um, but in many ways, history is starting to repeat itself. If white Americans make up less than half the population in a couple of decades, will that make the United States a plural country in a deeper sense beyond the population numbers? Has any you know, country I ever been as diverse as the United States is becoming? No big country, I think, has been this diverse, especially when it comes to people of immigrant origin. There are many multi-ethnic native groups in other countries. You know, China is an enormous country. India are there. It's another enormous country with different indigenous uh, native born uh, ethnic groups with different language dialects in some cases and religious backgrounds. Um, but what's unique about the United States is that almost all of our diversity is immigrant origin, which means that no one has a full claim to indigeneity in the country with the exception, of course, of Native Americans. And so that is quite unique, especially for a big country. Now, I do study in this book, Majority Minority, uh, six other countries that or and societies that have actually undergone majority minority transitions but not usually because you have such, as you say, plurality, such pluralism. Um, there are some countries that do match a number of different uh, ethnic groups as we have. Um, but like I said, not on the same scale of population. Well, those six cases actually are four countries, aren't they? Bahrain, Mauritius, Singapore, Trinidad and Tobago, and then Hawaii and New York City, obviously uh, parts of the United States. Well, a lot of New Yorkers, as I'm sure you know, would like to be their own country, but they're not, of course. Uh, Hawaii, on the other hand, actually was its own country. So Hawaii was a sovereign kingdom, uh, the Hawaiian kingdom, up until 1893 when the United States forcibly annexed it. And actually, their majority-minority milestone took place while they were still sovereign and independent. So it was a milestone that they effectively enacted on their own with their own policies, not subject to the will of the United States. Um, so it's really five countries and then New York. York, which is a cheeky exception. But even New York, um, while they're not their own country, as in, as, as I mentioned, uh, despite maybe their best uh, ideas, um, New York actually did have sovereign control over admissions of immigrants and their removal, much like a sovereign nation might have up until 1881. And that's when immigration policy in the United States became federalized. All U.S. states had similar powers. Um, and some states, like Massachusetts, actually really used the removal powers quite forcibly. Um, and so in many ways, it mirrored the, the immigration politics of a sovereign state, despite not actually being sovereign itself. It's ironic that Massachusetts would do that because we celebrate the immigration uh, <laughs> the pilgrims and such to, to Massachusetts. You write that Hawaii and New York overrode historic inequities. In what ways? So they did different things. Um, in, in the case of New York, in many ways, it's the story that we were just talking about, the sort of 
evolution, the, the evolution of whiteness and the way that the Irish, uh, who were the primary uh, antagonists in New York politics and New York social life in the mid 19th century, um, suddenly became more assimilated and integrated into New York society um, with the arrival of Italians and Slavs and Jews and Greeks and Germans over the next you know, 50 to 80 years. Um, but then eventually also with the arrival of what people then called Asiatics, mostly people from China and, and some from Japan that happened thereafter too and we had um, an, an asian exclusion act for that was in place until what the 60s it was basically the first major u.s federal immigration policy was in 1882 the chinese exclusion act uh, and that is the birth of federal immigration policy it was a racialized policy that sought to exclude people from citizenship and 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 other u.s benefits and and, and, and rights um, on the basis of their uh, phenotypical appearance and even that had very blurry boundaries because what does it mean to be asian or white there were actually a number of supreme court cases as late as the 1920s with immigrants from foreign countries um, suing to be white uh, and in order, in order to actually access those civil rights. And so, yes, that, that lasted into the 1960s uh, when the modern immigration system emerged from U.S. policy. Well, then we have some southern states that used to be part of Mexico. Um, and Donald Trump talked about building a wall. Right. I mean, these politics continue. Uh, and, and in many ways, you know, those southern states are, are also um, areas where a lot of his appeal is, is or at least the appeal of the Republican Party continues to grow. You know, Hawaii, though, was a different story. Hawaii uh, was a society that was decimated by disease, by an epidemic in the early 19th century. And then because it lacked the labor to supply the um, sugar and pineapple plantations and whaling industries, um, they had to recruit people from abroad to supply those, those, those industries. And that recruitment eventually led to the outnumbering of their native population. But the way that they approached the, uh, the, immigrant, the immigrants who were coming in, there was a lot of native, nativism at times, but there was also an extensive amount of intermarriage. And the Hawaiian understanding of what it means to be Kanaka, what it means to be native, um, evolved. And that was something that was viewed as, as something that was versatile and could be constructed over time. People had a relationship with the land that was independent of where they were from originally. And I think that actually we have an enormous amount to learn with a Hawaiian approach approach um, and perhaps even a broader Polynesian approach um, to nativity and to uh, membership. Well, don't a growing number of Americans identify themselves as multi-ethnic or multiracial? So how's that changing perceptions of diversity in the population? In many ways, it's actually the best thing that could happen. So, so much of our divisive identity politics today is driven by the reinforcement of social boundaries, right? Telling people that they're different and so they should vote in certain ways, believe certain things. But when those ethnic or religious boundaries are actually transgressed, they're crossed, they're blurred inside the same person, then they embody the move that the entire society must make, that they embody the, the, the way that a society must transcend those differences. And so actually the growth of mixed race individuals in the United States um, is a wonderful and I think actually very progressive trend in terms of helping the country cope with its demographic change because it actually reveals just how shallow these boundaries really are. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Justin Guest, Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University's Shaw School of Policy and Government. We're talking about his new book called Majority Minority, published by Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, Texas has a conservative governor and attorney general. How have conservative whites held on to power in the face of the demographic shifts there? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. So the Texas Latino population, which you know is continues to grow and obviously is historic in nature, um, is different from the Latino population that we see um, increasingly populating elsewhere, uh, other states in the United States. Um, and that is because of the Tejano population. So particularly in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, in the borderlands of the state, uh, there's a large number of people of, of Mexican origin who are actually, I think, more appropriately referred to as Texican. They are Texans historically, um, but who have 
um, resided there before the U.S. border was established in the Rio Grande. And so what's happened is, is what they say, the, they didn't cross the border, the border crossed them. And so in many ways, they're indigenous to that region uh, and yet are, are classed as Mexican in origin because of Mexico's former hold on Texas territory. And so it's a strange exception. But you also have a number of people who may have crossed the border, but did so five, six, seven generations ago and yet continue to be called Latino um, and, and treated as if they're somewhat different from other Americans who have been here for similar periods of time. Most Italians or Jews or the white ethnics that we discussed earlier in our exchange here um, cannot claim to have been in the United States for five, six, seven generations. And yet these Latinos, some of whom don't even speak Spanish any longer, which is of course reasonable since they haven't lived in a Spanish speaking country, um, are still in many ways um, pushed by our, our identity politics to identify as Latino. And so I think it's an exceptional group that is not the same group of Latinos who are more recent immigrants in places like Chicago or Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York. Well, isn't it assumed that these other groups are likely to vote for the Democrats? But haven't we seen uh, a shift that way? Many more Asian Americans voting for the Republican Party, uh, Latinos uh, in, in uh, Florida, uh, former uh, Cuban immigrants, or the you know the descendants of Cuban immigrants, also uh, voting for for Republicans, and yet um, the governments of those states see them as still a threatening minority. Yeah, that is that is there's some irony there. Um, I think what we have seen actually over time is the racialization of U.S. politics, which is not a good trend. Um, and here's what I mean by that: um, it is when parties, political parties, and partisan preferences are uh, become increasingly predictable by your racial background. And we see this actually quite pervasively across a variety of other majority minority countries that I studied, um, particularly when they're democracies. Um, but even if you just look back in the United States history, not very far even within our, my lifetime, um, we have seen minority groups actually not be uh, so wed to the Democratic Party. So in 1992, George H.W. Bush won the majority of the Asian American vote. In 2000, his son, George W. Bush, won the majority of the Muslim American vote. In 2004, George W. Bush took 44% of the Latino vote, uh, which still remains the high watermark, which we may see um, breached uh, in, in 2022 or in 2024. Um, and so as recently as 2004, we were seeing uh, the sort of blurring of boundaries of partisan boundaries as it relates to ethnic and, and, and religious minorities. But that has changed recently. And over the last 18 years, there's been a steady move um, where the vast majority of Republicans, about 83 to 85 uh, percent, are white and the vast majority of minorities groups vote for Democrats. And the problem is when that happens, uh, people identify each other as existential threats, not just people with partisan or political differences uh, in terms of their preferences or attitudes, but actually of existential threats. And when the other party is viewed as an existential threat, people are less likely to um, play by the rules in order to win and not, and because they simply don't want to lose. They, the, the stakes feel too, too high. So, People are responding to the democratic shifts nationwide with fears that uh, that uh, our society is changing, and and some politicians are capitalizing on that fear. Absolutely, and that's something that is consistent across countries that are going through uh, great demographic change. the The short term gains, electoral gains, of fear mongering, of exclusion, of identity politics appear to be simply too tempting uh, for some politicians and leaders not to leverage in their favor. And it's, it's not unique to the United States, um, but it's absolutely warping our politics. Are similar things happening in the other countries that you cited, Bahrain, Mauritius, Singapore, and Trinidad and Tobago? So Trinidad and Tobago, I, in many ways, I think is a sort of doppelganger. Uh, and it's not a great, you know, I wouldn't say it's a worst case scenario, but it's not a, a wonderful case either. Um, there you have um, two primary ethnic groups um, that are you know, constantly uh, engaging in debates over some kind of ethnic supremacy over, over the islands. Um, and it plays out in similar ways with gerrymandering, identity politics, 
um, uh, immigration being uh, highly contested and politicized in the interest of like of, of tilting the, the, the racial scales. The very similar debates that we find in the United States have already been taking place in Trinidad, which, of course, is also a, a free democracy. And so in many ways, I think it mirrors our politics. Singapore and Bahrain are autocratic in nature. Singapore is a, is a, is a lightly authoritarian state, but authoritarian nevertheless. And, and Bahrain is a, is a full-on autocracy. And so it's harder to compare. And yet many of the politics are also, you know, there's a semblance there too with uh, a variety of other techniques being used to suppress one side or the other. So it, this is all a matter of societies responding when the majority cities of the native or dominant group is being threatened? So, so much of these politics, I think, has been chalked up to racism and prejudice and bigotry in our societies. And, it's, and white um, supremacy. And, and white supremacy, right? So these kinds of prejudices uh, have been thought of as the, as the principal problem. It's what's stopping us from overcoming demographic change. But I'm going to disagree there. And the, the principal argument of this book is that if we're going to wait for the eradication of racism, if we're going to wait for the eradication of prejudice um, before we actually take action to facilitate coexistence in our societies, if that's a precondition, we're going to be waiting a very long time and there's going to be a lot of conflict. Much of this is in the hands of leaders and through governance, institutions and rhetoric. And if if those leaders are not prepared to actually look out for the social fabric of our society, of our cohesion, of our solidarity, of a sense of belonging and identity, then it's going to be left to things like markets and algorithms and fear-mongering politicians that we just discussed. And that's going to be bad for society. That's going to be bad for American democracy. And so while racism and prejudice is a scourge, it's not something that is a precondition. Uh, eradicating it is not a precondition for progress. In many ways, even the most coexisting societies like Hawaii and the best aspects of a place like Trinidad and Tobago or Singapore – are still consumed in many ways by the politics of race and phenotypical appearance. It never really goes away. What really goes away are the divisive identity politics that are shredding us right now. And that is something for leadership to be responsible for. How many conflicts around the world now come down to contests between competing groups for power in the face of demographic realities that some dislike? So I think you have two things happening right now across a variety of democracies. And I'll focus on see, democracies. We see problems in South America, in Africa as well, and in Asia, the Uyghurs, for example. Sure. But the, the primary difference between some of these countries and on the continents that you mentioned uh, and ours is that those groups are also indigenous, right? Those are indigenous minority groups that are, that are part of a multi-ethnic country um, rather than one that is immigration driven. And the immigration basis of our population change is what in many ways makes it so fraught because there's a sense of authenticity of nativity involved. And that's not something that can be you know, leveraged against you know, a different ethnic minority on, uh, ethnic group in China or, or sub-Saharan Africa. So, and so yeah, go ahead. The, the nature of these politics really is, is, comes in two types. One is places where demographic change really is dramatic. So, you know, parts of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, France, even Belgium um, are experiencing large demographic shifts due to the same forces that are driving American shifts. Um, but then there are other countries that are actually not changing that dramatically, but where immigration is still new. And as a result, because of its novelty, it's terrifying for countries that are not accustomed to foreigners coming to their to their shores or to their borders. And so in both cases, you see the kind of majority minority politics that I observe, um, but just in different ways because of the different structural nature of their politics. The EU actually encouraged smugglers and others uh, to prevent people from coming to Europe from Libya. People who are escaping uh, uh, dictatorships and other problems in their home countries. I actually I didn't know that they were engaging with with smugglers to prevent yes. them. Usually it's the smugglers that were actually facilitating their movement to the European Union. Well, the smugglers go both ways. 
<laughs> and then they bring them back and put them in. It's complicated, uh, but that's a whole other story, um, which I'll be addressing in a future show here. Um, okay, I'll be sure to listen to it. Yeah, I mean, Europe is is coping with these politics, but you know, the challenge for the European Union, of course, is that you have some countries like the former group that I mentioned, which are really seriously affected by demographic change, maybe not to the same extent as the US or Canada, but nevertheless significantly. And then you have other countries, you know, like uh, Slovenia, or a um, or a Hungary or a Poland, which heretofore have not been subject to major immigration trends and are facing stronger forms of and almost universal forms of backlash. Is the conflict in Ukraine partly a contest for power between ethnic groups? You know, I don't know enough about uh, internal Ukrainian politics uh, to, to really comment. I mean, certainly there are people with Russian, stronger Russian sympathies, but I'm not sure that ethnically how different they necessarily are. And that's probably for, for a Sovietologist or a Ukraine expert to say. Um, but what is really fascinating that's coming out of the Ukraine is the way that they are demonstrating the hypocrisy of many of these Eastern European and Central European countries. Um, towards refugees and asylum seekers, because it wasn't that long ago that the same people who are knocking at the doors of these countries were Afghans or Syrians. And we're told, of course, do not come here. You're not welcome. And, you know, gates and fences were, were, were erected uh, to prevent them from doing so. And now when you have a neighbor uh, that is clearly of a sort of ethnically kin group, um, the gates were thrown open. And so they're complicating immigration politics in places like Poland and Hungary, where the governments and the ruling parties, the Fidesz and Law and Justice, have hinged their electoral hopes on native, nativist approaches to politics. In a recent Washington Post essay, you argued that conservatives have, quote, successfully cast the left's inclusion of minorities as evidence that native-born white people are no longer part of the nation they seek to preserve. Has that story actually um, l driven some white voters to the polls? Oh, I think incontrovertibly. And there's been really extensive evidence from some fantastic political scientists um, who are far more talented statisticians than I um, to show that, in fact, it is incredibly mobilizing. Um, these identity politics are incredibly mobilizing, which is precisely why a lot of Republican leaders continue to either lean into them or not. Not um, push back against them. Well, for decades, New York City, which you've said is an exception in many ways, was the, the leading point of entry to the United States. One and a half million immigrants passed to Ellis Island in 1907 alone, when the city had 4.8 million people. Uh, and immigration through Ellis Island is considered one of the great stories of American history. But as we mentioned earlier, it also led to uh, restrictive immigration laws. So uh, have we been ambivalent about this, We're proud on one level and uh, fearful on another? Well, in many ways, our history is a bit revisionist, or at least we have uh, a little bit of memory loss. Um, as proud as we are of our immigrant heritage today, the immigrants of yesteryear were were not welcomed uh, with the same kind of fanfare that they're celebrated as a part of American history. When you know the Irish arrived during the Great Famine between 1845 and, 19, and 1854, um, during that decade, um, they were reviled. Uh, they were they were treated as as effectively um, uh, scum that were not welcome in New York City or anywhere in the United States. The people who Massachusetts deported. We're all Irish. So this was not a group that was embraced upon their arrival. They were treated as, as public charges, as people or as criminal uh, or as disease ridden. And uh, it's what actually led so many Irish Catholics to formulate um, institutions like Catholic Charities and uh, Fordham University and the Catholic University of America, um, Catholic hospitals and orphanages were all formed precisely because they felt like they were not welcome in the mainstream American institutions that serve the same public causes. And so, you know, in many ways, I do think that we have a little bit of memory loss um, about about the nature of our history. We celebrate our immigrant heritage, but it was never celebrated in the moment of their arrival. Yeah, well, Jews trying to escape from uh, Hitler also were excluded uh, for a time. Um, as on the other hand, as of next December, New York City will allow non-citizens to register and, and then vote in 2023. Isn't that exactly the kind of thing that um, <laughs> some of the people we're talking about are, are alarmed about and frightened by? 
Absolutely. It was an extraordinary move in the United States because very few municipalities and as far as I know, no states allow people who are not citizens to actually vote. But actually, it's increasingly common in Europe. Many municipal level uh, elections um, are are decided by non-citizens alongside citizens. And the idea is that they're affected by the policies. And so they should have a say in what actually goes on uh, and how they're crafted and who makes them. And maybe precisely because citizenship is at the national level, what these cities are doing in many ways is implying that they understand citizenship to also exist at a different level, at a local level, and that they recognize the equal investment that immigrants have in their municipality. Now, that's not something that the federal government is prepared to do, and that's why you won't ever see, uh, at least not you know, anytime soon, non-citizens voting in federal elections. Um, but in many ways, what cities are doing is recognizing um, the membership of people who are foreign-born and not yet U.S. citizens. Uh, in their you know, specific district. You're listening to Let It Locate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Justin Best. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Majority Minority. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's the word give and then the number two, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And as I mentioned, uh, I am talking to you from New York City, which has millions more people than any of the other five examples that you gave. Uh, aren't over 35% of New York's 8.4 million people immigrants with uh, over 6% of them undocumented. If New York were to try to suppress those numbers, what would happen? Well, I don't think New York's planning to suppress those numbers. New York is it celebrates those numbers in so many ways, right? Uh, New York has a, has a legacy as that gateway. Um, but I'm People not sure. Are leaving are there, are right there, now because of it's become too expensive. I don't know how many of them are immigrants and how many of them are people whose families go back a long time. Oh, I think it's expensive for pretty much everyone. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't think there are any plans to suppress immigrants in, in New York City. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, in, you know, New York, in many ways, is a sort of exemplar for the rest of the country. Um, but it, it can exist as this exemplar um, precisely because of those demographics and because of that legacy. It's something you come to expect from New York City. But for people who live in, in rural America or smaller towns and or even larger cities that are more homogenous, um, immigration... Can, it can sometimes be quite a shock when the pace of change is much faster than they've ever experienced. And I think that's actually been one of the challenges for American politics thus far is that the left is very quick to want to welcome immigrants, which is a beautiful inclination. But the problem is they don't do very much and they don't invest very much resources or time or energy in thinking about how to prepare um, the, the, the native born American areas and communities um, for their arrival. In some ways, it's, you know, we're so focused on the plant um, uh, we're about to pot that we don't focus on the soil that it enters. And I think that, you know, much of our future success as it when it comes to integrating immigrants into the United States and, and being at peace with demographic change will come if we start investing in that soil. The Brennan Center at NYU and others uh, have reported on the Trump administration's efforts to influence the 2020 census. President Trump wanted to remove undocumented people from the data. Wasn't that a violation of the law? So, you know, this is really up for debate. Um, it is absolutely a violation of the law. I think that's no question. Um, what's up for debate is whether it's right or wrong. So the law is quite clear. The census counts all persons. 
And it doesn't say all legally present persons, all authorized persons, all citizens. It says all persons. And so incontrovertibly, an immigrant, undocumented or not, is still a person, for goodness sake. So I don't think that's a question. The question is maybe whether the, 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 the census should and whether the Constitution should recognize all persons. And in many ways, this is actually really related to the question that you asked about uh, municipal voting rights for immigrants and for non-citizens, because it questions about what someone has to what status someone has to hold in order to count. Right. In, in order to be counted, because by being counted, it leads to resources and power. And, you know, for those who don't want immigrant groups to receive resources and power that comes with being counted, then naturally you're not going to want them to count. And that's at the core of those politics of, of, of census measurement, but also voting rights. Why haven't centrists or progressives been able to galvanize their supporters to the degree that conservatives have? Oh, I think progressives are, are pretty galvanized right now. And, and in many ways, um, I think they would be even more galvanized had, say, the census tactic um, that President Trump and, and, uh, and his Department of Commerce attempted to enact actually went through. Um, you know, in many ways, you know, politics is so reactionary in nature. And so, you know, th- there, that, that, that did not take place. And so I don't think it was that galvanizing of a moment. Um, but certainly had it happened, um, it would have been really problematic. Now, what's actually you know, transpired is that a number of organizations have found that the census nevertheless still undercounted people of color and, and, and people of undocumented status. Uh, and so even though uh, it was not deliberately an undercount by the U.S. Census Bureau, it happened nevertheless. And so that is something to be disappointed by. Um, but at the same time, those same communities are often undercounted by historic censuses. Again, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it okay. But it is, um, uh, but it is something that our country has been trying to cope with for a while. Are conservatives claiming that the changing demographics are an attack on the nation, an attack on what makes America American? No, I don't think so overtly. Um, you know, certainly in, in some of Donald Trump's most inflammatory rhetoric um, about, you know, the kinds of countries people came from, about people returning to their countries of origin. Well, he said um, that they were about, all rapists and uh, murderers. Absolutely. So I think at the absolute extremes, um, that is true. But I think that a lot of identity politics is about much more subtle signaling. And it's about symbolism. And that is actually what Donald Trump was a master of, is that he symbolically suggested who was a part of who deserved to belong, who deserved to be an American. Um, And of course, every now and then, you know, due to either a loss of discipline or a strategic uh, decision to use inflammatory rhetoric, he made things explicitly clear, Um, sometimes I think to distract from some of the other things that his administration was pursuing. Um, But in any case, even when you you don't have to be so explicit um, to convey, to communicate belonging and identity. Mitt Romney has spoken of the rights of corporations, and conservatives have argued that freedom of speech and religion are factors in the discrimination against LGBTQ Americans. Have conservatives co-opted the language of the left on human and constitutional rights? Uh, what do you mean by that exactly? Do you mean like are they actually using the logic of minority well, rights? They're saying in this that way? you know we uh, we have to protect free speech and the free yes. speech of, of course that we're talking about is actually um, <laughs> calling for restrictions. Yes, yes. They, so the the answer to your question is yes. I actually think that they have. So I, I think that's actually precisely what's happening is that in many ways in the current politics of white conservatives. Um, there is a desire to be construed or, 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 or identified with what has previously been minority rights. In some ways, this is actually an attempt to secure majority rights, um, you know, to, to actually have the right to have um, some of these exclusive views uh, protected in the same way that other minority groups once had certain cultural norms protected. You know, there have been Supreme Court cases over um, the availability of like second language government resources or um, the right to actually smoke a a forbidden substance um, like peyote. Um, And these were decided on the basis of minority rights, not always actually in the favor of those minority groups. Today, we see similar, I think, decisions or or cases in the judiciary and elsewhere in public debate about uh, things like whether you, you know, you can refuse service to a gay couple because, you know, you don't believe 
in, in homosexuality or because you believe it's a sin, um, whether you can limit uh, birth control access to your employees when you're a private company, because again, you don't, it violates your social norms. So I do think in many ways where white conservative politics are heading in the United States in many ways is sort of turning the tables of minority rights uh, uh, around. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Justin Guest, Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government. It's published. His book, Majority Minority, is published by Oxford University Press. Now, you wrote uh, in the Washington Post that progressives, quote, have every reason to redefine national identity in a way that strikes the elusive balance between exceptionalism and inclusivity. Can nationalism work for both for, for Democrats and progressives? I absolutely think not only can it work, that it can work, uh, but I actually think that it must work. You write so, nationalism should be neither too thick nor too thin. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, finish your other thought. Sure. So nationalism is arguably the most powerful political mobilizer of this current era. And right now, only conservatives effectively have a monopoly on it. Uh, The left has eschewed engagement with nationalism historically um, because of its excesses, because it can be vile. It can be absolutely foul in, in, in nature and very exclusive. But actually, it's incredibly mobilizing at the same time. And the left has done very little uh, creatively to think about how it can create a nationalism for the left, a progressive nationalism, one that is more civic in nature rather than ethnic uh, or religious in nature. And, and that is a challenge, I think, that is worth taking on um, for progressives in the United States. Now, in, in terms of how being it could be thick or, or thin, um, you know, the thickest nationalisms, of course, are the most exclusive. It's the ones with the with the the, the thickest boundaries around it uh, that exclude people of certain majority, uh, certain um, ethnic or religious minority groups, uh, in some cases, even geographical groups. But the thinner ones are the ones that the left has experimented with in the past. So. Uh, for example, in Britain, in the in the early two thousands, uh, Tony Blair uh, set off a sort of Britishness movement, a desire to sort of uh, establish a sense of Britishness that gave uh, Native Britons a sense of almost like a security blanket in the midst of great demographic change. Well, they had, the, and this was, was a, a fair idea, but the, that was pre Brexit, and I think the a lot of uh, British people feared that they'd be overwhelmed by people coming from other countries. Absolutely. And it made them and, and, and Blair's idea was that this would make people feel better by establishing what is the norm of our country that immigrants must assimilate to. And the problem was for Blair is that as as a progressive, as a leftist, even a center leftist, um, the construction of British identity that he that he used rhetorically and institutionally was so thin, so universal in nature um, that it connected to, you know, to a sort of general global liberalism more broadly. There was nothing distinctly British about it. And so, you know, one of the things he said in, in, in his um, speech when he was sort of announcing this idea of Britishness is that he said that, you know, very few people can agree with this idea of Britishness and uh, very few people can disagree, excuse me. And that was just the problem, is that very few people would disagree with it, and that made it not distinct enough to actually be meaningful. And so the real needle that you have to thread is how to be inclusive enough that you can be a broad identity that welcomes everyone, but exclusive enough that there's something that we have in common um, that unites people uh, and is a sense of distinction. Well, despite the demographic changes, aren't Republicans and conservatives likely to be overrepresented in Congress for decades because of the way that Senate and House seats are distributed. If the United States becomes a majority-minority country, but whites continue to control Congress, what will that say about our democracy? Oh, it'll say that we are the way we were built. Uh, I mean, that's already true. By virtue of having a U.S. Senate that is not subject to population distribution, um, by virtue of our gerrymandering rules, 
uh, you know, in many ways, constituencies that are disproportionately white and usually rural have disproportionate power. And uh, so you are you are what you're made of and you are, uh, you know, the institutions that make you. And, and that is and that is the nature of American politics today. Um, however, as a as a reminder to, to, to you and your listeners, you know, even though the United States is only 60 percent white right now, 70 um, percent of its voters are white. And so, you know, when we're talking about the translation of population change to electoral change, that is there's a, a severe lag and because of voting rates and also voting eligibility, uh, we will not be a majority minority uh, uh, votership uh, for quite a bit longer. Women have been half the population in the United States since its founding, but they've never had half the seats in Congress or on the Supreme Court, half the positions in the executive branch. We've never had a woman president. It's, I don't disagree with anything you said. It's true. Well, I'm, I'm just tell me, tell me where you're going. How that, how that <laughs> plays in the majority minority thing. Oh, sure. I mean, look, uh, what you're saying is, of of course, true. But what's different, of course, is that, you know, the women that we're discussing are native born. And in many ways, it's not the primary um, uh, social boundary uh, that is being politicized. Right. You don't have a party that is claiming that they're the party um, of women. Now, certainly Democrats have argued for many years uh, and have done well to mobilize women that they are the party that is most concerned with women's rights. Um, but they are not a, a party that is exclusively interested in women. The Democratic Party is concerned to appeal, appeal to males just as much. And so it, it's not a political boundary with the same degree of salience, um, even though I do think it is sort of growing in salience. Um, and, and so as a result, the suppression of women was never something where you had one political party that was for women's suffrage uh, throughout American history that finally achieved their goals. Um, there was a, effectively a, a, a a conspiracy, a rig uh, against women uh, for centuries. How could progressive policies be reframed to capitalize on nationalist or patriotic sentiment? So in many ways, I think it's about reframing what progressives do um, and, and, and also, I think, combating some of the frames that their conservatives' opponents um, uh, place on progressive policies. So much of what progressives do are incredibly nationalist endeavors. If you think about universal health care or, or the broadening of health care uh, across Americans, that is absolutely in the national interest. It's in the interest of national survival. Um, when you think of uh, the broadening of access uh, to pre-K education or the betterment of public schools in the United States, that is as nationalist as it gets. We are concerned with national survival, national competition uh, against other countries uh, in the world. Um, I can think of nothing more nationalist than, than, than a belief in climate change and policies to mitigate it, its excesses, because sure, the, the nation will disappear in some parts you know, of, of uh, the bayou and South Florida and, 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 and parts of California are, are, are being burned but by climate, climate change right will now. persist independent of a majority minority dynamic. Sure, sure. But these are nationalist. There are nationalist ways of framing progressive policies is, is my greater point. So, you know, certainly the, the, the previous two examples are perhaps more poignant uh, to the American case. Right. Where we're talking about education or, or health care access. Um, housing is another one. Um, you know, this is about national competition and competitiveness. But Democrats have lost in many ways a lot of these debates because they have allowed Republicans, I think, to define these progressive policies as purely in the interest of minority groups, which is absolutely false. Uh, the, the groups that benefited the most uh, from the Affordable Care Act in terms of numbers are actually white people. So certainly it helped many blacks and Latinos and Asians in the United States, um, but they were outnumbered by the number of white beneficiaries of health care. When it comes to schooling, um, many um, uh, conservatives uh, will signal that the you know that democratic and progressive reforms at the municipal or state level uh, are actually in the interest of minority children. But actually, there have been studies that show that diverse that, that more diverse schools actually benefit um, white children in the schools in terms of their performance on standardized testing. And, and I, so I, I've seen things like that and healthcare labeled socialist and communist as 
very recently, uh, even though uh, they don't seem to really be issues in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the idea is that these are ideas that are not somehow benefiting Americans in a more universal fashion, despite the fact that they're as universal as it gets. Um, and so this is really a failure, I think, to communicate politically um, and to define the Democratic Party and, and progresses more broadly um, as, as a party that is not simply for minority rights or minority groups, uh, but actually for a broader multi, multi-ethnic America um, in a way that actually raises all boats. We don't have much more time, but I do want you to address one other important thing. If the United States were to drastically curtail immigration, would the population start to decline in the next few decades? So immigration is our primary source of population growth now for the first time uh, in American history. It's it's remarkable. And that's because of the decline in fertility rates in many ways. And this was just recently reported in the New York Times uh, based on census data. And, and that is remarkable. And so if you were to suddenly halt immigration, um, which once was a completely far-fetched idea, but with the way the Republican Party is trending um, post-Trump, um, it's, it's not so far-fetched anymore, um, you would see not an immediate decline in population. Um, fertility rates will, will keep us rising um, marginally for a little while, um, but it will lead to substantial economic losses. Uh, we will not be able to compete um, with countries like China for, for global economic supremacy. Um, and you simply will have an aging population that is uh, tilted too heavily and people over uh, working age, which is not healthy from a, from a fiscal balance perspective. Ideally, you want lots of, of, of working age people paying in to social security and healthcare systems and insurance programs um, and not too many people uh, cashing out. And that is actually the future that, that awaits us if we cannot do more to secure our demographic future. I've been speaking with Justin Guest, Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University's Shaw School of Policy and Government about his new book called Majority Minority from Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, it was a pleasure. And thanks for a really good grilling. <laughs> well, I didn't think of it as drilling, but I did. <laughs> but that does bring us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardthopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number 2 WBAI.org right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, if you make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Topet at Large right now, you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Majority Minority by Justin Guest. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a BA, a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And during this Women's History Month, we're offering the 8-gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Uh, uh, we don't take foundation grants, ads. It allows us to be completely free speech radio. So please make that call now. We're off tomorrow and Wednesday because WBAI will be broadcasting special coverage of the Senate Judiciary confirmation hearings of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court. But I hope you can join us on Thursday when my guest, Ted Hamilton, will discuss his new book, Beyond Fossil Law. We'll see you then.